Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Today we have interviews from a bike workshop in Western Massachusetts, the director of the world-famous Bicycle Film Festival, and a lawyer who was arrested for touching a car. First... When I tried to donate bikes at Ruthie Woodring's Bike Lab this Saturday, Ruthie rejected one of the bikes. The explanation involved not only the bike's geometry, but Ruthie's bike projects in Haiti and Trinidad. I'm with Ruthie Woodring at Bike Lab in Northampton. It's a Saturday morning, and Bike Lab is every Saturday here. Every Saturday from 11.30 to 2.30. Well, actually, every Saturday that I'm in town, or maybe someone is subbing Bike Lab for me. But you can go to the Pedal People uh, web page, look for pedal people slash bike lab, and that has the schedule. Because when I'm out of town, then I don't usually do it. Okay, so I have tried to donate two bikes to you. One met your standards for a donation, and the other didn't. How does that work? <laughs> well, thanks for bringing the bikes by, Nick. And the two bikes you brought, they're both mountain bikes. Um, one of them is a next brand mountain bike with a nice blue paint job. But it has suspension fork and uh, another suspension, I don't know what you call it, the suspension in the middle of the frame. And that is the one that I don't want. I will take the other one, which doesn't have any suspension at all. Mm -hmm. I'm mostly collecting to try and ship to a project in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And anything that's got suspension, like suspension fork, unless it's like really high quality, it's just going to break and then they'll have to replace a fork or when I was in Trinidad and a suspension fork was no longer working, I was able to hammer in nails between the two shafts and secure it like that. I guess it could have been welded, but I don't really like to deal with suspension at all for to ship somewhere where parts and repairs are going to be maybe a challenge. It's just more moving parts to break. Plus with the cheaper suspension bikes, they're heavy and they're clunky and they get rattly. Oh, I saw one bike in Trinidad that was like a similar to this next suspension bike. And this guy was riding it all over, but it like had this side to side wobble, like a, it was fishtailing all over the place. Because of the suspension? Well, because of suspension, it's not rigid. And so that flex, a little bit of flex will lead to more flex, will lead to more flex as the thing breaks down. So these things just decay. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I guess. I mean, everything decays. But yeah. It's just... Yeah, it's just not worth the benefit. It's just going to be something rattly on your bike. That's my experience. I don't have experience with, like, high-quality suspension. I only mm-hmm. have experience with low-quality suspension. <laughs> All right. Good to know. The other bike seems kind of cheap, too, though. Yeah, but I think it'll be more sturdy, and it seems pretty solid to me. The In the case of the project, like to ship overseas, having bolt-on wheels, nut-on wheels, is actually kind of better than quick release, I think. Or at least my experience in Trinidad, like the wheels with quick release, I saw many... I saw so many broken quick release skewers, mm. because if you're not familiar with that system, it, it can be hard to figure out. Whereas pretty much everyone knows about how to work a nut and a bolt. Okay. And so you're going to take how many bikes to Trinidad? Well, I'm collecting now for um, to send to Haiti. And I haven't, I have enough bikes 
the problem is just shipping. I've been trying to figure out how to get them shipped there. And we've tried some different methods, the political instability in Haiti. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but just instability in general has made shipping really difficult, like the ports being closed or controlled by armed agents and things like that. Um, I'm trying to put bikes, maybe a hundred bikes in a shipping container of supplies that may be like Partners in Health or another organization, an NGO like that is shipping. Um, Cause I don't want to, I'm not trying to organize an entire shipping container and deal with all those shipping aspects. I'm trying to go in with someone who's arranging the customs and all that and just see if I can, you know, pay for, or like pay for like a fifth of the container or a fourth of the container and fill it with bikes. Mm. And how'd you get started with that? Um, well, I've known about Bikes Not Bombs based in Boston for a long time, and that's what they do. One of the main things they do, in addition to earn a bike programs and stuff like that, but they ship bikes to partner projects overseas. And when I was in Trinidad maybe five years ago, uh, I, in the community, I was the rural community I was in, I noticed there were very few bikes, and I really wanted a bike to ride between the volunteer house and the farm and places I was staying and I was just like where are the bikes why are there no bikes how can I get a bike how can it be so hard to get a bike just a bike is all I want Mm. (laughs) and people were like well there just aren't any here because they're they have to be imported from somewhere and they're expensive and 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 I was like well would people want bikes would they ride them be able to maintain them and would people want them because I know where there's a lot of bikes and people were like, yeah, sure. Lots, lots of people told me, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd buy a bike. I'd use a bike. And so then when I came back to Massachusetts, I started collecting bikes for the Trinidad Bicycle Osmosis Project. And we sent like 400 bikes down there a few years ago. Um, yeah, and then once you start collecting bikes, they just seem to come. <laughs> mm-hmm. People heard about the Trinidad Project after the container left and donated bikes. And also my friend Dwayne, he, he salvages bikes for me from a scrap metal pile. And pedal people customers donate them, bike lab people donate them. Nick's got one here that he's donating. Um, that's why I called it the Trinidad Bicycle Osmosis Project because there just seemed to be a lot of bikes around. Mm. It's crazy, even in COVID, you would hear about there being a bike shortage, but even during COVID, people were still throwing bikes in the scrap metal. It's hmm. just like there's a lot of bikes, but they often need a little bit of repair or people want like they want to upgrade. That's sort of a continuation of Bike Lab's mission. To ship them. To, yeah, just the Bike Lab's mission is to get as many people on bikes as possible and to provi- provide support to help people be able to maintain, fix a bike, ha- get a bike, whether it's people here in Northampton or through other projects. Bikes Not Bombs, which has, supplies people in Boston through their earn a bike program and stuff like that, as well as their overseas things. Yeah, bikes, bikes, bikes. There's so many bikes. <laughs> I just want to distribute them. I want to see every bike with a person on it. Okay, and every person on a bike. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All right. Well, Actually, can... well, maybe some bikes shouldn't have people on them. <laughs> oh, oh, like, the like one this you... one? Yeah. <laughs> like the one I brought. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Put, it. put it out with a free sign. Someone will take it. That's what we did. <laughs> You're closing up for the winter soon, right? I'm here till mid-November. It's 2022. Then I go to Kentucky for a month, and then I may be back for the winter. But sometimes winters can get a little cold in the basement here. 
So actually, since COVID, or during the winter of 2020, we did bike lab outside every Saturday throughout the winter. Wow. And it was fine. But it might move to the basement. Yeah, but the basement's a real tight space. Okay. So it might just sort of shrink. Okay. Um, or I, I do things by appointment as well. Oh, right. And my, my contact information is there on the Pedal People Bike Lab uh, website. And you're also co-founder of Pedal People, the hauling service. Yeah, 20 years of hauling trash by bicycle here in Northampton. Right on. Okay, thanks, Ruthie. Yeah, thanks, Nick. You're still listening to Bike Talk. That was Ruthie Woodring, founder of Bike Lab in Northampton, Massachusetts. Next, Brent Barber started the Bicycle Film Festival in 2001 as a platform to celebrate the bicycle through music, art, and film. And here, Taylor Nichols interviews founding festival director, Brent Barber. Good afternoon, everybody. I want to welcome Brent Barber to Bike Talk once again. He's been a guest many times. Brent is the founder of the Bicycle Film Festival, which has been going on since, Brent, 2001. Is that correct? Yes. Brent and I were talking just before we hit record, and I've been a, do I say a client, a guest of yeah. the film <laughs> festival? What do I say? Attendee, a friend, or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> An attendee and a friend a couple of times over the years. Brent, welcome back to Bike Talk. Thank you. It's good to be back. Can you tell me how you got started doing the Bicycle Film Festival and why a film festival about bikes? Is it only bikes or is there other stuff? What's the reasoning behind this madness in your life that has taken it over, I'm sure? I absolutely love riding bikes since I was a kid. I never stopped, really. started with the BMX and skateboarding. And actually, I'm from California originally. Oh. And then got into road cycling in high school. Not competitive, just enamored with this beautiful steel Italian bike culture. <laughs> and I saw breaking away. Actually, that influenced me. And then when I moved on my own, I had some roommates. And one of my roommates was a bike messenger. So I discovered that culture. And I love just going for long rides on mountain bikes. So I kind of loved and exposed to a lot of different types of cycling, never competitive myself. Wow. Also, I was there when critical mass first started. I was, I think, at the second critical mass ever. In San Francisco or in New in, York? In San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. So I have all that experience behind me. And then I moved to New York in the late 90s. And a few years later, I was hit by a bus. I was doored into an oncoming bus riding my bicycle. So obviously, that wasn't a great experience. But with my passion about all kinds of cycling and loving it, and also, really being into the arts and films, I thought I would like people to know how wonderful cycling is. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't even have companies. No matter what they say, Trek, Specialized, some of these big companies, they didn't really think that people could ride A to B until maybe the last couple of years. A is the start line and B is the finish line. Yeah, so they're very recreational or performance oriented. Right. They kind of tell the story what cycling is. They create the images, they tell the stories, maybe they even pay for films. And there wasn't a lot of stories being told about bikes. If you think about stories at that time that were being told, it was like Hollywood telling us that 40-year-old virgin rides a bike. Right, right, right. I can name the cycling films from Hollywood. The one with Kevin Bacon as the messenger, the one with Kevin Costner as the bicycle racer, and of course, breaking away. And then the bicycle thief. That's four, right? Yeah, Pee-wee's technically is is the bike movie. And adaptation of Bicycle Thieves, which is a masterpiece. Come out, come out, come out. Is Pee-wee's Big Adventure an adaptation of The Bicycle Thief? Am I just now figuring that out? God, (laughs) what an idiot. (laughs) I'm so glad you told me that. 
I don't know if a lot of people see that, but his bike got stolen and it's his odyssey to find his bike and what he goes through to get it. So, and so I thought, well, there's not a lot of stories being told and I can tell stories in a different way. We could tell stories through visual arts. The first year we had an art exhibition, paintings and photographs. And that brought different types of people from well-known established artists to folks from the bicycle community. Maybe a bike messenger who's been taking photos for the last 20 years, but never been in an art exhibition next right. to someone whose work has been exhibited at the big MoMAs of the world. So our first year was pretty much kind of what we do now. Generally speaking, we had music, organized bike rides. There was a whole community rising around it. The thing is that technology has changed and the accessibility to express yourself has changed for better and worse. I'm not a film purist. It's great that people can pick up the camera, but sometimes people forget the story. Right. Well, that's interesting. Let me ask you, how has the growth of TikTok and Instagram and all that changed the films that you either get submitted or that you choose to screen? I definitely think that there's a whole generation of people who maybe don't even call themselves filmmakers, but they are making media. And maybe they call themselves, which I consider from ad agencies, creatives, or they think of themselves as artists. I think there's a freedom in it. They're not like beholden to this old art school, film school through line, which also is bound by class and ability to pay for USC, (laughs) you know, film school, which is like, or even get into UCLA film school or something like this. But there is some things that get lost. I find myself telling a lot of filmmakers or people who do make bike films, go see independent film, go see the classic. There's a reason why those films are considered masterpieces going back to the bicycle film festival i'm shocked that i'm standing here 22 years later still doing the festival and because it was a groundswell of the community making it happen from the arts communities which crossed over into film and bicycling from different types of bicycling from sports and activism now i'm kind of humbled because we're kind of starting over again after the pandemic you mean starting after over? the pandemic we're now this year starting to do physicals we've been to over 100 cities around the world We've had a million attendees. At our peak, we had 200,000 people attend in one year. It's kind of remarkable. And this is a very grassroots effort. We have corporate sponsors. We may have the festival at the Sydney Opera House. But at the same time, we may have uh, our exhibition on Melrose in the Armenian district, an old retail store that we converted into a gallery. So we've done kind of like the institutions. And it's kind of the style of the Bicycle Film Festival. We try to find our way and localize and see what happens for every edition. How can we push the limits as far as we can with the resources we have? And resources we have are financial. And then what crop of artists and filmmakers are going to participate this year? Also, what producers, for example, Tokyo, we had, I think, 12 years in a row with the same team. And that was an awesome team. But then we had three years in another city, but that person got a new job or had kids (laughs) or whatever. So that festival was super successful, but we never did it again because it's such a rare person that would give so much of their time, give so much work and dedication. Also, having the ability to be an ambassador, to connect with all the different types of cyclists, different types of people. It's incredible. And we're remembering this now as we just finished the Bicycle Film Festival in New York. The beautiful thing about Bicycle Film Festival and the bicycle communities is that you have such a wide range. And I think this word gets thrown around a lot, diverse, but I think it does come true within the bicycle communities and bringing these communities together. It has become more challenging. This is true with any subcultures, or any cultures, you think of techno music. I remember like the late 80s, I'm aging myself, but going to, they were called acid parties. They were in Oakland where I went to them and you didn't know who was DJing. It was electronic music. 
and no one was facing the DJ. And now there is so many different genres and you like this kind of DJ and that DJ, this techno, this kind of techno, that kind of techno, drum and bass, jungle. And I think that's what's happening with the bike movement. We have so many segments. And I think what we can do is we can bring those people together. I love that. That brings me to a question. Can you talk really quick about how the festival works? I know you just had a couple of day festival in New York City. And next month on December 2nd through 4th in Amsterdam, you're going to have a in-person festival. Now, will that be the same crop of films? Will it be slightly different? How many films are going to air? How many programs? Will there be some filmmakers there? How does the festival nuts and bolts kind of work for the audience? Well, if you went to the festival before COVID in some cities, generally speaking, we would have it's Tuesday through Sunday events. You would come Tuesday night. And people would come from all around the world or regional, like in LA, as we did for many years. People would come from Arizona, Mexico, Japan, actually. I remember people came from Japan. It's a good excuse to go to LA, to go to the Bicycle Film Festival or whatever other city. So you would come on Tuesday night. We have a panel discussion. Like, for example, we have women in cycling. Or we've done the 100th anniversary of Columbus tubing. And Antonio Colombo, whose father started Columbus tubing, came out. So we have this kind of night where people discuss different things, different topics. And then on Wednesday night, we've been having a vegan barbecue. We haven't done that in Los Angeles ever, but we've been doing dinners, gala dinners for all the filmmakers, for sponsors, for people from the community. Sometimes we have like a mayor speak, depending on the mayor of whatever city we're in. In Sydney, Lord Clover Moore, she's pretty awesome and in bike. So we like have her there. We've had a couple thousand people show up for the vegan barbecue with beers and with DJs and just a lot of fun. That kind of event can bring a wide range of community together. And then on Thursday, we have an art exhibition. We've done that in Los Angeles and around the world. And art exhibition can happen in a museum, can happen in a gallery, like a blue chip gallery can happen, which I like a lot, but it's very hard work is to convert old empty retail spaces and fix the lighting and paint them up and make them really nice. We'll have street artists like Cause or Shepard Ferry to folks like Kiki Smith or Francesco Clemente, Seth Ruiz. So we've had really great artists participate. And then we've had like Fast Eddie Williams, who is a messenger from New York, who's had a couple of books out, his amazing photographs as a bike messenger in New York. And that draws a lot of people. Right, people come right. out to see the artists. Not also. just bikers too, probably. A lot of non- no, That's it. We're not preaching just to the choir. I want people right. to discover and come enjoy and see what the bicycle culture is about or bicycling right. is about. And also we have more freedom than like a blue chip gallery where we can put in filmmakers. So we've asked Spike Jones. I'm doing a little bit of name dropping, but the art exhibition is a place where people do that. Like Spike Jones, who's also former BMX photographer, some of the original bike BMX magazine and skateboarding. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then nominated for a few Oscars since. And he's had a couple of films at Bicycle Film Festival. And we've had some old photographs that he did of Matt Hoffman in exhibition. So that's been a real treat. And then Ridley Scott, the first movie he ever made with his brother, his late brother, Tony Scott, who is a director of Top Gun, if you people remember, amongst other action films and so on. Ridley Scott, the director of Blade Runner, he made an installation in London that was about his first film that he made with his brother. So it's kind of emotional. And his first film, I can't remember how it's called, Bicycle, I believe. 
And it's just a short black and white film, if I remember correctly. And he made a nice installation for that. So, wow. so we're able to reach out to people like that. Maybe Ridley Scott's not going to make a film for the festival, but he can participate in that way. Sure. Again, it's not just folks who establish big names for themselves. There's a lot of working artists who like to cycle that maybe don't have big galleries like Talia Lempert, who's amazing. She's very independent here in New York. Great painter. She does portraiture of people's bicycles. Oh, um, wow. That's so a great that name. would be a Thursday night. Sorry, you can tell I'm really excited to talk about that exhibition. Yeah. And then Friday night, something I'm really proud of is something that we do. We've done concerts. We've done just straight up concerts. I think we did one in the Eagle Rock Library and some other places in L.A., We've done them in big venues, small venues. We've done punk shows. We've done classical music with orchestras. We've done electronic music. And something we've done with Blonde Redhead quite a bit, we've adapted Jorgen Leff's films from the 70s, A Sunday sure. in Hell, yeah. Stars and Water Carries, An Impossible Hour. And we've done that all around the world. And we bring in a chamber ensemble of horns and strings. And we're doing that in Amsterdam. So I'm really excited about that project. You're going to screen A Sunday in Hell and have live music to it? We have done that, but we're doing it to Stars and Water Carriers oh, oh, okay. about the 1973 Giro d'Italia in Amsterdam. But we've done a Sunday in oh, Hell. How with great. How great. A oh. Sunday in Hell is Paris-Roubaix. Yeah. Just so the audience knows. And it's an epic bicycle race that goes over cobblestones and dirt roads and finally finishes in the velodrome with mud all over the cyclists. So it's really epic. What were some of the standouts in New York just this past week? Well, now we're talking about films. I've been talking about all this other stuff, and now we're talking about films. And it's tough to always say the standouts. I'll just say that the event itself, being together in that room, was high. People said the word was wonderful. And it's not just because I do this event. I do it because it was that. If I didn't get that jolt, I wouldn't do this. And right. seeing all the communities together, the friends, new friends... I would say one of the great films that we had is called White Eye, which was nominated for an Oscar. It's from Israel. It's about the bicycle never gets ridden in the whole film, which is unusual oh. for Bicycle Film Festival. Right. <laughs> but there is an accusation of theft and there is a defense of theft. And it's the juxtaposition of those points of view and the consequences of accusing someone of theft. Wow. And is that it, a feature or a short? This short was nominated for an Oscar this last year. It's just gripping shorts. And then there's another film that's White Eye by Tomer Sushan. And then there is another film that I really like a lot that's from Brazil. It's a musical. My favorite genre in the world is not musicals. Right. But this is a musical and it's from the favelas. The music gives us the palette to digest the dark reality of people being exploited by the delivery companies. And it's hard because I think many audience members are cyclists and will align with these folks, but you can digest it because the music's amazing and they're dancing and singing, but it's so dark. Let's be straight. It's practically current day slavery. You know what I mean? Sure. Like it's tough what people go through. They shouldn't for how much money the folks are making. I mean, obviously the restaurants are being exploited as well, but this is about the cyclists, the delivery people. Right, right. The, that the was a big pattern. thing in COVID also. When everything was locked down on COVID, the guys who brought you your Chinese food were still out there risking their lives at the time for tips, basically. Besides having been in New York last week to see the festival or being in Amsterdam on December 4th or 6th, how can people see the films? Well, we're going to be doing a virtual festival worldwide. I recommend people that are listening to this sign up now if you want to do that on our email list, which is available at bicyclefilmfestival.com. Just go on there. 
put your email on there. One of the films I would love to say that I'm very proud that we have that was submitted last year is that we have a film and it was made in Iran by Iranian filmmaker Timur Gaderi. And it's about the morality police arresting a young woman on her bicycle because in their city, they the don't want to ride yeah, Talk so, about a timely film. Yeah. And I know in Los Angeles, there's a wonderful Persian community. Right. Really put my heart out to them. So the only way to see this Iranian film or White Eyes is through the virtual festival. You can't go to your website and download it or buy it or something like that. We actually did look into that. Sure, I think we probably could make a lot more money doing that, but there's a, we're a small company and we prefer right. to make events that bring people together. Great. Well, I love that. It's a lot more work to do the ones that make less money. We make more money doing stuff on the internet, but sure. it's not my pleasure. But we will do- I mean, I'm just saying because I would like to see some of those films. We are coming back to Los Angeles. I don't know about Boston, but if yeah. you live in Boston, come to New York for the next festival. You're not going to see White Eye because we just played it, but there'll be other great films to see then. Do all the films change every year or do you kind of re-curate the program for each city each time you screen? Or That's a great question. So we used to have a steady list of cities. If we go to Los Angeles and New York and Boston next year, we can't play the same films there, you know, but... The same film roster that was submitted, we have a submission process where we watch hundreds, almost a thousand films every year, and then we accept films. And from that, we put this roster of films and go on tour with that for about 30 or 40 cities. That's from the past. This year, we went to 30, so we're on our way back, baby steps. So then next year, we come up with another roster. But say that we've never been to Las Vegas, Nevada, and we're going to have a festival in Las Vegas, Nevada. Then we can play films from the last five or 10 years, whatever works. We localize all the programming. So that there's always something new for the local audience. Yeah. I can remember still one of the movies that I saw of a group of cyclists at nighttime riding through the Chernobyl neighborhood that was a ghost town after the nuclear accident. Oh my gosh, Lucas Burnell goes to Chernobyl. Yeah, it was almost a horror kind of movie. It was so sort of spooky, but it was also kind of liberating and freeing to see these people riding through this ghost town. The images are still with me. Yeah, it's kind of interesting you bring that up considering what's happening in Ukraine now. And the guy that directed that, Lucas Burnell, his mother is Ukrainian. Oh, wow. So he went over there. But I think it's been really tough on him and obviously with Ukrainian folk. Again, our thoughts go out. Yeah, to the Ukrainians in general, right? Yeah. Before we end, Brent, can you tell the audience how to find more information or how to see your schedule or how to see some photographs just to learn more about the the Bicycle Film Festival? So we have a TikTok account. We haven't been posting as much on TikTok. I think the most popular social media for us, like the one that we use the most, is Instagram. So Bicycle Film Festival, all one word. Then we have a website, bicyclefilmfestival.com. And you can join us on the email. We send out newsletters whenever there's stuff happening. (laughs) No, that's great. So it's a lot of fun. If you've never been to the Bicycle Film Festival, you probably can attest to this. It's a pretty unique and wonderful event in that way, how the community comes together. I've been twice and it feels like a family already to me the second time I went. I felt like I kind of knew what was going on, even though I didn't necessarily know the people that were working there. I knew the bike world and it really felt inclusive for me. So that was great. Yeah, I like to think it would be a friendly environment. It is. Nick Barber, thanks so much for doing the Bike Film Festival and for coming on Bike Talk today. It's been a pleasure. You're still listening to Bike Talk. That was Brent Barber, founding director of the Bicycle Film Festival. 
Now, Adam White, a New York City bike commuter and personal injury attorney who represents cyclists, was arrested for removing a license plate obstruction. I'm with Adam White, attorney with Vaccaro and White, and they specialize in personal injury, cyclists, and others. Correct. Adam, recently you were arrested for removing a piece of plastic that concealed a license plate on a car. Is that right? That's correct. It blocked one of the digits on the rear license plate of the vehicle. The problem with this is that in a hit and run, a driver who stops for a minute to check out the scene and then flees, they're not as likely to get caught because you can't read their license plate. That's correct. And so with your experience, your background, you did the right thing, I would say, by removing the obstacle to reading this person's license plate. And then you were arrested for it. That's correct. That's my opinion. I was arrested. In my opinion, I was doing the right thing. People have different opinions, but I believe I did the right thing. Somebody else's opinion would be that you shouldn't touch anybody's car. That's correct. And that was the opinion of the police. That's my assessment as well. It's interesting because I don't necessarily disagree. I do believe in respecting people and their possessions and their personal property. But you got to look at the balancing of interest here. And among the people who are criticizing my actions and saying you shouldn't touch anyone else's property... Well, that may be the case. The flip side is people shouldn't be obstructing their license plates. And the police, in my opinion, again, should be doing their job, which is to ticket these folks. And they're not doing that. And I tried that by contacting 311, completely unsuccessful. And that was recently in the community board meeting. The deputy inspector of the 72nd precinct even acknowledged that unless they're seeing someone actively defacing a plate or actively covering up a plate, they will not issue tickets. So you're in New York City? I'm in New York City. This happened in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. I commute by bike every day from Brooklyn to my office in Manhattan. And I see this all the time. I see these all the time. I see phony paper plates. I see obstructed plates, obscured plates. There's a variety that people use to evade accountability, to be anonymous, to avoid speed cameras and red light cameras. And while there are some laws on the books concerning this, I would argue that they're also weak. They're not being enforced Whatever there are, folks are typically not getting ticketed. NYPD is not enforcing the laws that are on the books. And I'm seeing it as a growing problem since the pandemic. And it's only going to get worse if and when we ever have congested pricing, since it's all going to be based on cameras taking pictures of license plates. Have you, as a personal injury attorney representing cyclists and others, seen a case where this matters? Um We represent a lot of people in hit and run cases, and there are times where people are unable to read the digits. However, unlike the tip of the iceberg, while we handle a fair number, we see lots of hit and runs. I can't specifically identify spaces like that. However, I definitely know that these folks are evading red light cameras and speed cameras, and they're evading accountability, and they most likely are putting citizens, pedestrians, bicyclists, and other vehicles at greater risk because they're trying to evade red light cameras and speed cameras. And when you have a higher percentage of people evading those and going through red lights and going above the speed limit throughout the city, you're going to increase the likelihood that people are going to get hit and injured. And if the person knows that their plate's covered, they're more likely to leave. We also get cameras a lot of times. These days, there's cameras all over the streets, public and private. They're getting better and better. I don't recall a specific incidence where we've had gotten images and footage where the plate was deliberately obstructed. We definitely have had situations where people have left the scene and returned knowing these days that, oh, by the way, there's cameras all over the place or people may have seen them because they stopped for a few minutes. 
So it's a matter of time before we get actual cases where you have an image of a plate that's obscured or hidden. The police were there and they saw you do this? No, no. What happened was, as I was starting to remove this piece of plastic that was jammed inside the plate cover, the guy in the car jumps out. I was in the back of the car, so he noticed me or something. Jumps out and says, what are you doing? I think he saw me before. He said something about, oh, you did this before or something. And at the time, I didn't recognize him or the car because I've done this in the past. But actually, subsequently, after this whole thing went down, I did see that I had did the same thing to this guy in August. He must have been aware that it was me. And then I remember, I think I took a photo of his plate in the front. And he had it was like a city employee placard in August that he moved. And I tweeted about it in August. Anyway, so he basically said, oh, don't touch my car. And I told him, I said, I'm not touching your car. Why are you obstructing the license plate? You cannot do that. And he says, I'm calling the police. And I said, fine, go ahead and call the police. I'm not going anywhere. I'll wait right here for the police to come. So I did. And then he got on his phone and called the police. The police showed up, a whole bunch of them. They asked me what happened. They separated the two of us. They did say that he told them something about that I was causing damage to his rear plate or something to that effect. And I said, I did no such thing. I caused no damage. I only took an extraneous piece of plastic and I literally showed them the photo of the plate before and after. And in fact, when I removed this piece of plastic from the plate, he grabbed it out of my hand. And I remember him with one hand, he had the phone and the other hand, he was holding onto this piece of plastic. So the reality was I didn't even damage the piece of plastic. <laughs> the piece of plastic serves no value except to cover up one of the digits. So he had it in his hand. I said, look there, it's in his hand. Here's the image of what he was doing. And here's the after. Look at the plate. There's no damage to the plate. There's no damage to the frame of the plate. He's committing an illegal act. And we were having a reasonable discussion, or so I thought, with the four or five officers standing around me. I told them I was an attorney. I told them what I did for a living. I told them that I see a lot of tragedies out there and people getting hit by cars. And this is really a big concern that we see. Reckless driving and people going too fast and going through red lights and injuring and killing people. And they said, well, yeah, you really shouldn't do that. You should call 911 or 311. I told them I did. And I said, you guys just don't respond or you don't take this seriously. You just don't issue any tickets. I've done it numerous times. And I thought we're having a reasonable discussion. And then the next thing I know, one of the officers says, okay, we're arresting you. And put your hands behind your back and slaps on the cuffs. I said, well, let me just get my bag. And they swore me and they grabbed me. I thought they were going to throw me on the ground. I wasn't resisting arrest. Kind of scary. They said, relax. You're tense. I said, I'm trying to relax, trying to relax. Just get my bag and whatever. And I've never been arrested before in my life, 58 years old. It was pretty scary. And then once I was able to kind of just relax and I got handcuffed. And as I was getting escorted away from the scene, I asked them, I said, okay, well, you're ticketing that guy, right? I got no response. I was in the squad car and I said, okay, you issued a summons to that guy, correct? No response. And I said, can you at least answer the question? I'm just asking you, can you just let me know whether you issued this guy a ticket for obstructing his plate? And the female officer in the passenger seat said, no, we didn't because we didn't observe it. And I said, I don't understand. What do you mean you didn't observe it? I showed it to you on my phone. I showed you what he did before and after. And then she was silent. And that was that. And then I was in jail for five hours. I got fingerprinted. And then I was released, which called a desk appearance ticket. And I have to report back to criminal court, December 1st. And when I was getting arrested, I did ask them what the charge was. And they said, criminal mischief. Okay. So what do you take away from this? Is this an eye-opener for you? You know, yes, it is. It's an eye-opener for me in many ways, many, many, many ways. And unpleasant one. It doesn't come as a shocker or surprise. It's definitely a disappointment. I've been a resident of this particular precinct. I've been at Park Slope, a very liberal enclave in New York. And in the 78th precinct, I've gone to community council meetings in the past was an assistant black football coach, an officer from the 78th. I like and respect police very much. They put their lives on the line for us. And I just am frustrated and don't understand why the police 
are taking this position. And Mayor Adams, who before he was a mayor, he showed up at all these vigils, killed cyclists and pedestrians. And I've addressed it to his office numerous times about this issue. And he claims this is an important issue, preventing ghost cars, fake plates and skewer plates, instructor plates. But apparently, even though he's an ex-cop, that message never got to the NYPD. And so by raising attention to this, I hope that what the city and the NYPD will do, this might be a fantasy of mine, but we'll start to clamp down on this. What's unfortunate and gives me even greater pause is that unfortunately, as documented over the last year or so, a lot of these vehicles with blatantly obfuscated, obstructed, and defaced license plates are city employees. And many of those city employees presumably work for the NYPD because they have NYPD placards, which is really remarkable. It's really brazen. And when the NYPD shows up in a situation like this, and I reasonably and rationally and calmly explain to them the situation and show them what this guy was doing, for them to arrest me and not give this guy a ticket, it can only embolden people. The cops aren't going to issue tickets. So why pay tolls? Why pay speed hammer or red light camera ticket and just do this with impunity? And it's really, really frustrating. So I'd like to open up a dialogue with the NYPD, with Mayor Adams, and call attention to it. And I try to be an optimist. And I was asked today on WNYC radio whether I'll continue doing this. I think I will. I think I'll look around twice to make sure that I can see inside the vehicle that no one's in there to avoid confrontation or getting arrested because that wasn't pleasant or fun. I will definitely not do any damage to a motor vehicle. But if someone puts a leaf or bends a plate or puts a card in there, these are some of the things I've seen, or a piece of plastic that I can easily pull out without causing any damage to reveal the license plate number. If I can do it safely, I will continue doing that. I don't think that's a crime. It shouldn't be a crime. It doesn't even constitute criminal mischief. Criminal mischief requires destruction of property. There's no destruction of property. Like I said, even in August, I think I took that piece of plastic out. I think I put it on the ground. He must have picked it up and he's been using it ever since. (laughs) And I would like not to do it, but I think we need to make the law more serious before more and more people get involved to do this. There needs to be consequences and we need to get the police to do their jobs. And we also need to get the city to really clamp down hard on private citizens and in particular city employees, particularly New York Police Department, because it undermines our trust in the system. Most cops are good. Most cops don't do that. Most city employees don't do that. Most citizens don't do that. Everyone talked about the broken window policy. I'm not saying I support it or against it, but this notion of if we tolerate this sort of blatant disregard for public safety and blatant disregard for the law, throughout the city, and it just gets worse and worse. It's like the Wild West out there. And this notion of cars are sacred. You can never touch someone's car if they're in the public street and mind your own business is remarkable and frightening to me because they are not sacred. Unless you want to leave your car in a garage or in your own driveway when they're sacred. But once you get out in the public streets, it's a privilege and there's an obligation that you're not going to be anonymous, that you're not going to cover up your plate. You're going to be identifiable. This is not the 19th century. And if you're going to do that, there need to be consequences. And how we get those consequences, I agree. Ideally, we don't have people like myself going around as little mini sheriffs cleaning up people's license plates. That's not the ideal. And I would like to open up a dialogue with the police and get them to do their job. I did notice in Nassau County, and I tweeted about it recently, Nassau County police have clamped down, pull people over with obstructed plates if they're their own and part of the police department and they wave their PBA badge or something, whether those guys get off or not, that's the question. But here in New York City, it's rampant. It's well-documented. I continue to document and take photos. 
And I tweeted them to the mayor's office, to city councilmen and public officials. But unfortunately, the NYPD is an entity unto itself. And we had all hoped a little bit that Eric Adams, the mayor here, who's a former police officer, would have some sway. But the NYPD is a little rogue. And they did it by arresting me. Some particular sergeant, like I said, made the decision. I would love to meet that sergeant. Maybe at some point I'll get a chance to depose him and try to understand more what he was thinking, why he felt like I was a sufficient threat to arrest me and to lock me up for five hours and make me have to go through the criminal justice system to teach me a lesson to respect people who violate the law. Yeah. So windshield bias? Windshield bias. Absolutely. Absolute windshield bias, I would suspect. Like I said, it is a cultural thing. Somehow, like the car is just an extension of people. Listen, as a bicyclist, you're a bicyclist, I'm a big bicyclist. When someone messes with my bike, yeah, I do take it a little personally. But interestingly enough, when some of the media contacted the police department and got their version of the story, they reported the 45-year-old operator of this vehicle as a victim. They literally referred to him as a victim. And I think they might have referred to me as a perpetrator. So this guy was a victim because I removed a piece of plastic from his car. I've never seen them use the term victim when a bicyclist or pedestrian gets killed. They never refer to the dead pedestrian or the dead bicyclist as a victim. But somehow, because I touched this car, the sacrosanct entity, a vehicle, like they think this is the worst thing that could ever happen. And it's justifiable homicide if this guy pulled out a gun and killed me. <laughs> there's a chance he would have gotten acquitted or it was a minimal manslaughter because you touch someone's car, that brings it right down to manslaughter at best or criminally negligent homicide at worst. So that does give me pause and that does make me a little scared to continue doing this. However, I do feel strongly enough about the issue that I will continue doing this. I don't encourage other people to do as I say, not as I do, but I feel strongly enough about it to continue doing it strategically and carefully, but I would prefer not to have to do that. What about a lawsuit? Um, well, first thing I have to do is I have to deal with the ticket, the criminal charges, and depending on what happens with them and what comes out in discovery, I may or may not have a claim against the city of New York and a particular police officer who will be protected by whatever. Maybe there's a 1983 claim. I'm not a civil rights lawyer. That's one angle. And also, honestly, against the driver, I think the driver that operated his vehicle lied. So if he lied about destruction of property, which caused me to be arrested, then I will consider pursuing a claim against him. And again, it's primarily to my stand on this issue and to call attention to it and to hold the driver accountable for his actions and the city of New York and NYPD accountable for their actions, because they are trying to hold me accountable for my actions. So I believe in the legal justice system. It's flawed, but I will pursue legal channels, consider my options as we progress. But right now I'm doing one thing at a time. And that is to try to defend myself on this particular charge. Because yeah, theoretically, if I got convicted of this, it's a misdemeanor. I'd have to report it to the Bar Association. It would impact my legal license. I am putting my ability to make a living as a lawyer at some risk. But people put their lives at risk for issues they believe in. I don't think I'm putting my life at a risk unless there's some crazy person wants to kill me. But you can't avoid that. But I do think it's such an important issue. Unfortunately, after 20 some odd years of dealing with tragedies of reckless drivers and the devastation they've caused, the least we can do is to try to make the streets safer and try not to undermine the laws and the instrumentalities, speed cameras and red light cameras that we have and hold people accountable. And if they're accountable, if they're identifiable, they're less likely to injure or maim people, less likely to go through red lights. And we're going to live in a more civil society. And that's what it's all about, civility. 
People say, well, Adam, you were in civil, you touched this guy's car. And like I said, what I ask those folks to do is consider the whole thing. And let's have a discussion. Let's not just say, oh, it's the bad cops. It's bad drivers and operators. 100%, you cannot touch someone's car. It's let's look at the whole thing. Our society is too split that way. Everything's very black and white. This is not black and white. Yes, in general, I subscribe to the rule of respecting other people's space, other people's property, other people's cars. But again, if someone's cutting in front of me, which happens a lot on the bike and happens to you a lot on the bike, sometimes you have to reach out your hand and tap on the car to get their attention. And I cannot tell you how many times I've gotten threatened, and I'm sure you've gotten threatened, and any bike commuter gets threatened by people. And I try to show them my hand, I try to be polite, but people go apeshit when you touch their car and you remove a valueless piece of plastic. I don't understand the psychology of it. I haven't owned a car since 1993. I just don't understand how people get so angry about it. Really angry, incredibly angry. Mind your own business. Don't touch other people's things. Some guy in Arizona said, listen, out here in Arizona, we're locked and loaded. You do that out here. He was like an implicit threat as if that's okay. He's going to kill me for removing a piece of plastic from his car. So it's going to be hard to rationalize with those folks, but hopefully most of us are rational. Even police officers, they're trying to do their job. And like I said, it was a particular sergeant in the 78th precinct who made this decision. It was a bad decision. And I would like to know more about why he made this decision and why he didn't exercise his experience and judgment. Obviously, he became a sergeant because he's been around the block, but he was trying to teach a lesson. And maybe that lesson was don't touch other people's cars, even though there's no crime in touching someone's car. There is no crime, but came up with criminal mischief. Yeah. If somebody's breaking the law, I guess you're supposed to call 311, but then we know that they don't do anything. How much do you think it costs the police to have several police officers detain you and then arrest you for five hours? That's going to be a tough one because they were all on duty, so they're getting paid anyway. They're talking about crime in the subways and they're talking about this and that. The fact that there were at least seven or eight officers called to the scene who were involved in this and to restrain me and handcuff me, they could have issued me a summons. And they're spending all their time and resources fingerprinting me. And there's got to be better stuff police officers should be doing. They could have done a better job and have way more impact if they just walk up and down 4th Avenue and issue tickets to these people. It's just mind-blowing. It's frustrating. It's mind-blowing. I have a couple of calls out to a couple of ex-cops, one in particular, the investigator we use, who I like and respect. Like I said, I think we need to treat the police officers with respect and professionalism. They do need to earn it and they can't just fall back on, okay, there's some people who said defund the police and there's some people who disagree with this and disagree with that. I'm not in that camp. Like I said, we need the police and the police deserve respect. They put their lives on the line and let's figure out a way of paying them more, treating them more professionally. But the flip side is what are they doing? What are the cops doing? What can they do? And everyone makes mistakes. Look, maybe this guy made a mistake in the heat of the moment, but his arresting me in the scheme of things is like, whatever. That's not the biggest thing in the world. I'd be much happier if I got arrested and went through the system, whatever. I'd spend another few days in court. But if this got the police to do their job and issue tickets and get legislation passed and get these individuals from obstructing their plates and defacing their plates and using fake plates or not even having any plates at all, wow, that would be a huge win my time and going through this would be so worth it because it would make our society better. That's the optimist in me. I go back and forth between optimism and pessimism, but I'm always hopeful. And I look forward to appearing at the 78th Precinct Community Council meeting and addressing with them and being respectful of the police and trying to open a dialogue and seeing what they need 
Again, obviously, the flip side is all these people are abusing it. I regularly saw a Hummer in Park Slope, one of those army vehicles with a police placard on the front and a obscured plate on the back. And to me, that is just so offensive. And if I were a police officer, it would undermine my morale. It's public corruption. It's outrageous. And it needs to stop. But it's not going to stop until the higher ups in the police department and the mayor of New York take this seriously. They talk about crime. This is criminal conduct that they're tolerating. They talk about it. You hear in the press that they're concerned that these types of vehicles can be used by criminals and terrorists. You can't identify a terrorist or a vehicle or someone committing a crime when they leave a scene. They rob a bank, they leave the scene, they've got a ghost plate. You can't identify that plate. So that's what we're looking at too. And they've sort of acknowledged it on some level, but they're not doing anything about it. And one other thing, there was another gentleman, now that I think about it, there was a gentleman who I know of who, I think his name was Tony Malone. He was biking in the bike lane, might have even been on 4th Avenue. There was a vehicle in the bike lane. He tapped on the vehicle and said something to the driver. You're in the bike lane. You're blocking the bike lane. The guy started cursing him out. The guy took off after Tony and they got out of the car. They beat the crap out of him. They broke his leg and they took off and they had fake plates on their car. They had paper plates on their car. So that is a crime that I am aware of. And... Like I said, if you don't clamp down on this, it's only going to get worse and there's going to be more chaos and mayhem and more crime. And it's not about more police. It's about the right police. If they're not going to do it, then let's have a separate agency, maybe an arm of DOT. They're against speed cameras. They're against red lights. They're against citizens like myself taking it upon themselves, but they're not willing to do their jobs. Well, that's fine. Let's just establish that and let's fund an agency that will hold drivers accountable and get them not to cover their plates and to be anonymous. And that's our right in the system. We have a right to be able to identify that vehicle. That's a more important right than someone's right to hang a piece of plastic from their license plate. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're in the right line of work, Adam. Yeah, it's definitely for better or for worse after 25 years of doing this. It's frustrating. A lot of times the best I can do for people is get money and compensation. But what I tell people all the time, I'm all about vision zero. I would be really happy to move on to something else, do some sort of environmental advocacy or other types of things. Until then, I'm doing what I can to represent our clients and also to reduce the traffic violence. I've been told firsthand how I'm a hero to so many people. I'm so brave. I don't think that's the case. I'm not a hero. I'm not so brave. But it is a great feeling. Like I have no equivocation about what I did. I would do it again in a heartbeat. And I feel so supported. That's what makes me optimistic is that Shahina Kanif, our city councilwoman, has shouted that she's going to have a discussion with the precinct commander of 78. Robert Carroll, my assembly person, is outraged. I'm hearing from public officials. I'm hearing from friends throughout the world. I guess he got picked up on Yahoo. Everyone knows the difference between right and wrong. And so if I can do my little bit to improve our society and make it safer for us to bike to work and walk on our streets and for our kids and our kids' kids, I will have lived a good life. (laughs) Right on, Adam. And this is Adam White, partner in Vicaro and White. And I think if a cyclist needs a lawyer in New York City, they should call you. Absolutely. Yeah, we believe in what we do. My partner, Steve Carl, and myself are incredibly passionate, and we're trying to make the streets safer and represent our clients. Thanks for the opportunity, Nick. This is great. And thank you for your service. That was Adam White, New York City bike commuter and personal injury attorney. Now, Galen Mook, host of the WNBR Cambridge chapter of Bike Talk, on a very important subject with Mixmaster Wheeling. 
Well, this is a topic I've wanted to talk about since November. <laughs> I, know where, I know where you're going. It's you know. So <laughs> what, do, what do you do when you're riding out there? And uh, ostensibly, it's it's windy, it's cold. You're yeah. you're moving, you're you're heating up, and your body temperature is changing. You get this kind of drip, yeah, out yeah. of the nose, right? Um, so your nose starts to get clogged. You, you're having <laughs> trouble breathing just a little bit, and it's becoming uncomfortable. And you, you got your hanky, but it's, you know, where is your hanky? Your hanky is probably somewhere like... Oh, you got away. gloves on. What are you gonna, exactly. Yeah. So what is the quick, you know, the easy way to, <laughs> you know, clear that passage? So, yeah, so the snot rocket, as I like to call it, um, <laughs> which, which I find to be a, uh, you know, it's a skill. It's a skill that you got to work right. on. It's not something you're born with, the ability to, to eject snot <laughs> out of your nostril. I'll agree, because I have to tell you, I... Have almost never done it. What? I'm not kidding. I've so, almost never done it. You really? So, well, you can get gloves that have an absorbent thumb. Yeah. So if it's just a wipe, you know, it is what it is. Okay. But yeah, and I don't know. I guess maybe it's the New England Puritan in me. I just can't do that, especially like on a group ride. Not we're not even talking about cold, but like no, no, yeah, yeah. People do it on group rides, and you're like, man, what? What are you doing? There's spray everywhere, and it's disgusting. <laughs> well, you know, you, well, it's, you don't want to interrupt the flow. You're in a cadence of pedaling. You're like <laughs> yeah. trying to make your way to your yeah. destination. It's cold out, so you're right. not going like, to. Yeah, carburetor's clogged, man. You got to get it. Amen. Yeah. So, yeah. so anyway, so I was doing a little bit of like, well, exactly. You, you got a little bit. So, <laughs> how do you snot rocket? Yeah. And again, if you want to call in with your own uh, opinions and suggestions, I bet you there are like pinky pinky swears out there, and Ooh. people thumbs only. Oh, is there I'm, is I'm, there a double? I'm a I'm a I'm a pointer finger kind of guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I came up with a four step process. <laughs> Might be a five step process because the last one is wipe. Have but, a nose. Yeah. Okay, that's one. <laughs> okay. So you know, it, you, you got to choose one way. You, you got both clogged, but you got to choose: am I doing left or am I going right? So I'm, you know, say I'll choose right. So I take the finger and I block the left. Yeah. And usually I'll use my pointer because that's this was handy. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's the first step is just block the other one. Right. You can do this with gloves, too, yeah. by the way. It's just... Lobster know. claw would be weird, though. That's like, you know... that That's how I do it. Is it's it just, really? Just slam my ah, lobster claw glove <laughs> against my face. Uh, so that's step one. Step two is point your head to the side. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. A, good, <clears throat> a good angle yeah. out so that, you know, the trajectory of the uh, expulsion does not get all over your shoulder. Is there... Much like, you know, driving in England versus driving in America. Is there a left or right side rule? Because Ooh. that's what bothers me. I would assume you would go to the gutter. But when I get rocketed from a guy, I'm passing. Well, there's two nostrils. So you are going to have to, you know, launch into mm. the passing lane. Yeah. So, but, but again, that's <laughs> that's step three. Oh, sorry. I'm getting is, ahead. <laughs> is to check that no other cycleists are behind right, you. Right. No, no one's riding up yeah. on your tail. No one's, you know, sucking your It's bad wheel. form if you actually get somebody in. It's like you, well, you, it's, you opened it's, your door. It's you doored points. them with the It's, with, it's with 10 some points flint. on the bingo. <laughs> if, you got, if you got the winter cycling bingo out there. I got, I got phlegm doored. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. It's, it's called the Dutch nose. <laughs> <laughs> You got that one there. So, you gotta, so step three is check check to make sure that you're okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then the final step, which is you know just going at it, is you do like a short, real staccato, and this is where the mm. skill yeah, practice yeah. Like factor the comes. Saxophone or yeah, just yeah. like a real sharp, <clears throat> like a like a bam. Yeah, exactly. But um, it, I, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's I, it really has. <laughs> 
opened up a whole new avenue of breathing. Yeah, yeah it's it's a uh, yeah. So that's that's my snot rocket. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.